Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. And the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Great to be with you. Some folks are watching over on Periscope. So glad you're here. You know, we had an unbelievable experience. You know, it's the Ed Martin's Pro America Report. We have these unbelievable guests on. Oh, yeah, Melissa's saying hi to Noah. There's a, there's a romance springing up on Periscope through my uh, Periscope here on the, on the Pro America Report. Ed Martin's Pro America Report is so big that we have guests on. Yeah, other people are saying hi to Noah on Periscope now. It's turned into Noah's Periscope. And we have, we have the, 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 the program, the Ed Martin's Pro America Report, is so big that people are coming on the show... And when they're done on the show, they take the interview they had with me and then they put it out on the Internet. So American Greatness, the awesome blog, amgreatness.com, phenomenal place. I mean, phenomenal. Right? You, you always see you often hear from Julie Kelly. They should do this for her. Well, we had on Thad McCotter, the former congressman who was on last week talking about General Flynn. Very good. Very good guest. And um his interview became a standalone uh, uh, link that was posted on American Greatness and passed, uh, passed all around the country. So we're proud of that because we get great guests and, uh, and we think it's important and we just got to keep plugging along. So thank you for all you do to make that possible, whether you're listening on the radio uh, at The Answer San Diego, which we love, or you're at the Periscope, or you pick the show up afterwards as a podcast and pass it on to others. Whatever you're doing, it's making a huge difference. We appreciate it. And you can go to edmartinlive.com and get... Uh, a daily sign up there for a daily. First of all, you can track lots of stuff there. It's important, but you can also go um, and get signed up for a daily email that you will get sent to you every morning, 5 a.m. Pacific time, which is 8 a.m. East coast time. And if you're in, uh, let me see if you're in, I was just texting with Dominic Tarzinski in Poland. If you're in Poland, I don't know. It's about uh, 5 a.m. It's about uh, two in the afternoon, but if you sign up there, edmartinlive.com, that'll be great. And we will go through it. All right, on today's program, Ed Martin's pro America report you can hear Conrad Black talk about what's going on. His newest piece in the uh, in, on American Greatness dot uh, com is up, and he'll talk about exactly what he thinks is going to happen in this country as we emerge from this election. And he say he thinks it's going to be not just uh, economic, which will be big. It's going to be political and geopolitical. He thinks a lot there. And then Dr. Brett Decker, and we'll finish the program as I break down for you exactly what the globalists are looking at and the number one thing they're looking at is softening your disdain for china and softening our will to break with china that's the information campaign that's going on that's the ad campaign that's going on and i'll show you the sort of centerpiece of it at the council for uh, foreign relations richard haas he's got an extra a not h-a-s-s but h-a-a-s-s ha he's got an extra a in there you might know why that's uh, that's some sort of foreign uh, background he's an american guy um but We'll talk about that all in the show, but here's what you need to know, okay? You ready for this? You won't be surprised when I tell you what you need to know. What you need to know is that the Flynn, the General Flynn situation is much worse for Obama and Susan Rice and everybody else 
than we ever believed. It, I, I, trust me, I don't mean to say that they'll all be held accountable. But when you have Obama and his people go on the offense and Obama is complaining, look, he's complaining in a setting where he allowed a tape recording to happen and putting the word out. The New York Times is complaining about Flynn, attacking Flynn. They're attacking Flynn's credibility. It's as if they're not only resisting the fact that the prosecution dropped it, they're trying to destroy Flynn again. Because what, what General Flynn has done is survive the coup attempt that was meant to take him out, but he's also now become, I don't know, the top five, top 10, at least the top 10, top five names in America of people that everybody knows that's on the side of good guys. I, so, so what you're seeing is the race by CNN and the race by the mainstream media and the New York Times to try to define and redefine Flynn as a bad guy because they see a man with massive momentum. And what you need to know is when they attack, they don't attack for fun. When they attack, they don't attack because it's entertaining. I mean, they they probably do enjoy it and they do think it's fun. They attack a guy like Flynn because they know how dangerous the situation is for their people. Meaning for Obama and Susan Rice and McCabe and Comey and Clapper and Brennan and on and on and on. And so what you need to know is the sound of, of uh, sound of fire, the sound of, of gunfire at towards Flynn again is because they know there's something to worry about. What is it? Well, what became clear late last week. Oh, and, and this is how crazy it gets. This is how you I mean, what I'm trying to do is show you how you can see what's happening. And so, for example, the CNN CNN has a piece up earlier today, a lengthy piece, maybe twelve hundred words. I don't know, a thousand words on the signature block. On the filing by the prosecutors last week in the Flynn case included an error of the the bar number for one of the prosecutors. Now think about and CNN wrote and they said this is evidence of something very wrong. This is evidence of something problematic. This is evidence of that on and on. And and then they say it, it could be a stumbling block for the judge to, to handle this matter at all. What? It's like it's like if somebody spelt the street address wrong in the, in the in a signature block. It's not an indication of anything, anything at all. It's not. It's it's. And so CNN spends all this time and, and breaks it down because they're desperate because they're desperate. But but what you need to know right now, and I can tell you this because I talked to General Flynn over the weekend is General Flynn is he's still got to go through these things. And Judge Judge Sullivan, as someone just uh, was on Periscope saying, Judge Sullivan still has to uh, has to um, uh, reject, uh, 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 accept the um, accept the filings from the prosecutor and dismiss the case. But I, I think over the weekend, I, I looked into some of it and we talked to some people. There's no way that's not going to happen. I mean, the judge may drag his feet. He may bring in some lawyers and yell at them. He may even come in and, and lecture Flynn, perhaps. I don't know. He could. But in general, I just don't think he can. There's, there's lots of cases that make it clear he can't go forward. Can't let things go forward. But what you need to know is General Flynn is not going away. He's not going away quiet. He's not going away at all. He's going to regroup and redouble. He knows what's at stake. He knows what's at stake. And, you know, they just, it's the old adage, if you're going to kill the king, you better kill the king, right? If you're going to shoot at the king, you better kill him. I mean, if you're, if you're going to try to take somebody out, you better have succeeded. In this case, they didn't. And that's what they're afraid of. Oh, back to Obama. What came out last week was that Obama knew. 
Not whether Obama might have heard. Obama knew. He knew about the wiretaps. He knew about the conversations with, uh, with uh, Flynn and the Russian ambassador. He knew the FBI was watching. And what does not, does not pass the smell test is that at some point he stopped knowing. If you're being briefed on somebody who you think of as an enemy, he didn't like Obama did not like uh, Flynn. They disagreed on policy when Flynn was serving uh, in the Obama administration. He forced him out. So he didn't agree with him on that. And and so somebody you don't agree don't agree with and you're getting briefed on it. It doesn't pass the smell test that suddenly Susan Rice and the others weren't briefing Obama. So now it becomes what did you know and when did you know it? And what was the pressure delivered from the White House to keep the Flynn case alive. And what was the pressure delivered? And uh, let me be clear. I bet Obama was not sitting in the White House saying, fabricate something on the Russians. I think it's more likely that Obama was saying, this can't happen. These guys are compromised. What can we do? And his people were running around and doing the heavy lifting. But there's no difference in my mind. I mean, there's a difference sort of theoretically. To President Obama saying, go and get Flynn, take down the Trump administration. And what happened, which was, well, we can't allow that. Sounds like he's compromised. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle that? And everybody runs off and does that. By the time you're seven and a half years, almost eight years into the presidency, the president has learned that when he says something, he doesn't have to say, I want this done in this way. He just says, this is the way it should end up. And everybody gets the point. It's one of the things about power. I'll never forget when I was, I was chief of staff to the governor in Missouri many years ago now. And in the first few months in the job, I didn't realize that when I said something, everybody did it. And so some one time I was in a meeting and I said, I wonder what the history of, and this was an agriculture question, something about agriculture and how farmers dealt with something. And within a week, I got a, a 25-page report from an expert on that subject in the agriculture department of the state. And I said to the deputy chief of staff, what is this? And they said, well, they heard you mention it. And so they thought they would research it. And I said, wow. And he said, yeah, you got to be careful what you mention out loud. That's what happened with Obama. Obama knew, and Obama knew how to use power. He had all his people around, Valerie Jarrett, Susan Rice, all those people. And what you need to know is Obamagate is real. There's a reason it's trending on Twitter and millions of people are putting it out there. It's because Obama knew, and Obamagate is real. And the question now is, how far does this go? And I think we're going to get to the bottom of it. I think we're going to see more and more coming out. Are right, we going to take a, a break on the radio? When we come back, we'll talk with Conrad Black, Black. Excuse me, Conrad Black, Lord Conrad Black. In just a moment, is Ed Martin here on Ed Martin's Pro America Report? We'll be right back. Ed Martin and the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on Ed Martin's Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Lord Conrad Black. He's been a guest on the program before. He's really very kind to spend some time. He's a prolific writer, among other things. He's a historian and a writer and a businessman. But he's got a piece that was up a few days ago on American Greatness, amgreatness.com, and it's called The Changes to Come. And I thought of a guy, he has seen the scope of uh, history and a lot as a historian himself, and I thought this was a really good think piece. And so uh, welcome back, Lord Black. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks, Ed. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. 
Well, so I wanted to ask you about this. I just was ranting uh, before we got you and I got on the air about China, and I, I have uh, I was referring to the fact that uh, uh, the uh, Council for Foreign Relations head Richard Haas wrote a piece, <clears throat> excuse me, basically saying, well, you know, China it's not such a big deal, and I I wonder at this late point in American life, you watch the politicians and the political think tanks, do they understand where we are with China? Do what? Do you, what's your sense of it? Is it is is this a real change coming? And that's I think what you argue, but does the establishment realize it? Uh, yeah, look, I think it varies from from organization to organization and person to person. Um, the, the Council on Foreign Relations is, has always been a sort of dead center establishment group. They're good people and accomplished people, but, but never controversial. They thought that uh, Ronald Reagan was a frightening figure. They thought he shouldn't have referred to the evil empire. I mean, I was on their advisory board for years. I know these people. I know Richard Buzz. They're good people, but, but they're unadventurous and they're very cautious. They're not anti-American or defeatist or anything. They're just very, very cautious. And, uh, you know, they, they thought that the Strategic Defense Initiative, which basically won us the Cold War, uh, you know, a non-nuclear anti-missile defense system, um, that, that, that it was an impetuous and uh, and uh, disruptive thing. And uh, they couldn't imagine the Cold War would end until it ended. And, and you know, they, they thought Mrs was much too radical. She shouldn't have gone to war in Falklands. Uh, she, she wouldn't succeed for her economic reforms. I mean, they're just steady as you go. And if that's what you want, just to keep the boat balanced and moving in the same direction at the same speed, they're fine. But if you want a policy change, that's something else again. And in the case of China, a good many of them advanced in the, in the sort of wake of Henry Kissinger into that sort of China right. industry that developed. And uh, I would say that we have to agree that China is a great power. We accept that it's a great power. It's a distinguished nationality. We accept that. It's ancient nationality. No one could argue about that. And so it's there, and we'll have to deal with it. That part, I think we can all agree on. But the, the, the free lunch that we've given China, the whole Western world, not just the United States, Canada, Britain, Western Europe, all of them, uh, allowed them to run roughshod over patent laws, required surrender of uh, industrial intelligence in order to do business there, unequal trade agreements, all based on the theory that if we just were nice to them, they would gradually democratize the way South Korea has, for example, as if there's the slightest comparison between them. And... Uh, uh, and, 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 and that was the way to, to go, and any questioning of that was fallacious and dangerous. Well, of course, it's nonsense, but people don't seem to realize that in asserting the American interest and the rule of law in the world, the South China Sea is an international waterway. Patents are to be respected. Trade agreements are to be reasonably equitable to both sides. In stating those things, that's all Trump and his administration have been doing. They haven't been, you know behaving like imperialists trying to belittle China. In doing that, mm -hmm. and calling China to account completely irresponsible behavior over the coronavirus, uh, we, we are just putting things right and putting things in a normal order. But you notice that nobody, absolutely nobody today, talks about China imminently surpassing the United States in the world. And we can step foot out of doors for 10 years without hearing that rubbish until Trump came into office. 
Right. Uh, we're talking with Lord Conrad Black, and again, his piece is up at American Greatness. So I want to ask you about this one, because you're the perfect man for me to ask about the Monroe Doctrine. You know, people remember the Monroe Doctrine. It's co- in, in, in 2023, it'll be 200 an- a year anniversary when the President James Monroe sort of promulgated it. It was promulgated at the time, he described it, because the Russians were trying with European allies to colonize the West Coast in America. Some people don't realize it was actually the Russians. Don't tell, don't tell Adam Schiff. Uh, but the, the actual Monroe Doctrine talks about it wasn't only it wasn't about territorial aggression. It was about a it said the system, your system, referring to Europe and other uh, non-Americans, your system of uh, a political system was not compatible with ours. And I, did, I think that the American people, maybe, maybe this is what President Trump did do this. He did talk about the Monroe Doctrine a couple years ago at the UN. But, you know, the idea is that the Chinese system, they steal, they lie, they take our tech, they send us fentanyl, they don't care about telling the truth about disease because they, the, the Chinese communists, they do put China first because they need to control their people. But the system's not compatible and we have to realize the system won't be compatible if they give us better trade terms it's it's a systems problem i think do you agree yeah i I think you're 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 completely right in what you say about the 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 difference between the systems but also believe in in these things being matters for the individual countries to work out for themselves uh what what we want to do here i think and what the administration is doing and and i and in fairness i think here you've got pretty good support from the democrats schumer i mean i I, i'm not a great schumer supporter but he has generally been supportive of the president in, in changing the relationship with china and the um the west Europeans have, have have also been moving in parallel with the U.S., as the Japanese and India and others have. And so I, I think we've got a broad coalition in the world and also a, a revival to some degree of the old uh, the old view that partisanship ends at the water's edge. And, and when you're defending the national interest opposite foreign countries, there should be a, a bipartisan consensus. So I think we're getting some of that. But it is not to tell China they have to change their system. That's up to the Chinese right. to work at. Oh, no. I, 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 they can't yeah, treat yeah. us like this any longer. Exactly. No, no, I, I didn't. I, I agree completely. I didn't mean, hey, China, change your system. I meant for Americans to think that, oh, if we just get a better deal with China, their their, their way of life, which they can decide for themselves, as you point out. But I, I mostly mean the communist regime. All right. We're talking with Lord Conrad Black, and I, I want to shift gears a little bit to your piece. You're talking in the piece, the economy reopens or the countries reopen, America, America reopens. And your your thought is that we're going to come back faster and it's actually going to be politically advantageous for President Trump. Walk us through a little bit about that well um obviously it can't go on the way it is i mean adding five to ten million unemployed every two weeks and shoveling a trillion dollars of assistance at the window of completely borrowed money 100 percent borrowed money uh at the taxpayers account uh every every month i mean it, it, it can't go on like this so uh, there is an, a, a sort of getting of economic necessity at the country's head anyway. But apart from that, um, it, it, we, we did flatten the curve. We now know that two-thirds of the recently infected uh, coronavirus sufferers uh, contracted it indoors while conforming to the guidelines. So uh, what we're going to have to do is reinforce the protective shell around the vulnerable people, those 
with challenged immunity systems, mainly elderly people, but not exclusively so. And, and for the rest, we have to take our chances. I mean, the fact is, uh, amongst people beneath the age of 65, one American in 18,000 has died. Now, everyone is a sad thing, but that is not statistically particularly significant. And, and, uh, and, and we can't govern the country, any country, the United States, Canada, any of the Western countries, on the basis of locking down because of a statistical threat, which is worrisome and, and saddening and sometimes tragic, but, but is, in fact, in the president's terminology, not as serious as the consequences of throwing tens, scores of millions of people out of work and, and all of the ancillary problems, the impoverishing of people, the demoralization of them, and so forth. And, and so what we have to do is do our best for the vulnerable people and recognize that this is a substantial problem for a fifth of the population and a minimal problem for the rest and get the rest of the people back to normal as soon as possible and we got to, we have to change the attitude instead of being afraid of this ailment we have to be determined to overcome it and we've got to stop hiding like moles in our basements like the <laughs> democratic candidate for president who can't even skype properly and and, and get on with their lives and uh, the statistical danger of dying if your immune system is in good shape are, are minimal. I mean, the, the, the danger right. is very small. So, so, you know, we have to get to that. And, and I think that if the uh, reopening plan includes an incentivization to re-engage laid-off employees, say, say uh, uh, an additional 5% of their salary is tax-deductible for the first six months or something like that. Uh, I'm just making that by, uh, up out of whole cloth, some sort of incentive like that. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get back to 80 or 90% of where we were very quickly, and that's what we need to do. We've got to beat this illness, but we've now... We, we, we now know that it's not like the Black Plague. It's not going to threaten the life of everyone in the country. It isn't like that. Right. We didn't know that two months ago. We didn't know what we were dealing yeah. with, partly thanks to the Chinese. But now we do know that, and, and we, we've got to get our economy back and get on top of it. Yeah. All right. Lord Conrad Black, thank you as always. Thanks for writing your great columns and taking the time. I very much appreciate it. And I, I got to take, I got to run though. And uh, we'll talk again very soon. It's Ed Martin here on Ed Martin's Pro America Report. Be right back. Ed Martin and the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Our next guest is our old friend, Dr. Brett M. Decker, the New York Times best-selling author, professor at Defiance College in Ohio. And uh, previously, he was the editorial page editor for the Wall Street, excuse me, the Washington Times and they, a Wall Street Journal Asia uh, reporter. He's written a number of books, uh, including, as I mentioned, New York Times bestseller. But one of them is Bowing to Beijing about the Obama policy on China, which is what I'm all torqued up about today, Dr. Decker, because... I say the Chinese government, you, the regime, they've proven we can't trust them. It, they haven't just proven that they're bad trading partners, that they cheat during the WTO or they cheat on tech. They, you can't trust them on pandemics. You can't trust them on fentanyl. You can't trust them on anything. And we're pretending that we're going to be getting along well. And, and, and over the weekend, Richard Haas, the, the president, I think, or the chairman or whatever the title is for the Council of Foreign Relations, wrote a piece that basically said, don't get too excited about China. Don't say it's a second Cold War. It'll all work out in the end. I don't understand, Dr. Decker, how I could be more right than I am right now. Your comment? 
<laughs> well, I don't say this all the time, but uh, you're absolutely right, Ed. Uh, finally, finally, that we should end the show right now. But, but, but seriously, now here's the problem. I mentioned the Monroe Doctrine. I've told you this before. It's a broken record for my listeners, but there's a reason why. The Monroe Doctrine, 1823, said, stay out of our hemisphere. And all these hundreds of years later, it's, it's true now. And it wasn't just because stay out of our hemisphere, territorial invasion. It was Monroe referred to as systems of political governance, as systems of living by, the, by these other nations uh, that would, incompatible was the phrase, with America. We, we can't be compatible with communist China right now. We can't be anymore. So, so what comes when Wall Street and D.C. and everybody starts saying, well, we need the billion four a number of people in the market and the cheap labor? What happens in six months or a year when they do that, Dr. Decker? Well, you know, there's several. It's a great, great series of questions there. And, and there are different parts to it. You know, one, the cheap labor. Well, there's cheap labor all over the planet. Right. So. The one right. thing I said when I lived in China and when I've, I've written about it for, well, about 20 years, um, Southeast Asia um, has half the population of China and is much younger um, and to a certain degree more educated. So why don't we just move things down to Southeast Asia, right? And, and we have friends there, Singapore, Philippines, uh, right, Thailand, um, even to a certain extent Malaysia, right? I mean... These are people that aren't threatening to us and rely on us and are, 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 are good regional partners. So why don't we move things there? Well, the answer is, you know, once Nixon opened up uh, China uh, to the United States and opened it up to the world in the early 70s, a, a U.S. decision was gradually made that, um, you know, at the time we needed it because what Nixon was doing, he was splitting up the two communist powers, China and Russia. And by developing a relationship with right. China— it meant the Soviet Union and China couldn't, uh, the two communist powers couldn't um, uh, collectively challenge the West. So, you know, that worked right. for a while. But what we did is we doubled down on this relationship even after the Soviet Union collapsed. And we decided, look, China's either going to be a bad actor or a good actor. Let's engage with them, make them richer. And as Chinese people get more economic rights and more financial freedom, they're going to want more political rights and political freedom. The problem is it didn't work. You know, it, it, they've gotten richer. They've gotten more powerful. Uh, U.S. consumers buying cheap junk made in China are what's building their aircraft carrier, building their nukes, building their space program, arming their military, right? I mean, we're their largest export market by far. Um, I mean, they, they sell a lot to Europe, too, but we're, we're a growth market. You know, 70% of our economy is consumption. A lot of that stuff comes from China. Uh, so what we've done is we've, just, we've empowered this red dragon that, that, that kind of wants to uh, set us aflame and gobble us up. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's totally been U.S. policy to sort of create this monster, and now we're dealing with it. And, and uh, but but what why uh, here's here's one question I had to ask you though on that well, I agree with you that could, we could move our stuff to um, China you could say to China hey we're moving out of here we'll go to the, the, to uh, Malaysia or Vietnam for cheap labor the problem with that is isn't the reason one of the reasons why that again the system the communist Chinese regime works is they force their people to function in a way that even uh, you know I'm not I'm not saying I don't know enough to know Malaysia and Vietnam whether they have totally free governments, but they certainly aren't the same level of command control economy. So the Chinese can get away. If you're a businessman and you go to China, as long as you're in good with the Chinese government, you got what you 
you need, right? And if you go to uh, if you go, if you do the same thing in, in Malaysia, maybe you have to work against uh, all these things. You see what I mean? Yeah, I mean they, in China they have slave labor. Like like every year, factories burn down and the fire escapes are locked because they have people working these onerous hours and terrible work conditions. And if the fire fire exits weren't locked, people would leave the job. So they lock them into the factories, right? Um, so, right, other places aren't, 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 don't devalue the individual to that degree. I, I think gradually you're going to see a bit of a decoupling from China. One thing, a lot of U.S. firms, most U.S. firms, haven't made the money they thought they were going to in China. So you have this two-pronged approach. One, we thought if we engage with them, we can bring them our way. That failed. The other prong was right. U.S. companies thought, oh, 1.3 billion people, if we can sell to that huge company, uh, we're going to just make tons and it'll make the U.S. consumer market look small. The problem is that, that that consumer economy in China hasn't developed like people thought. So, but like the big three have lots of factories building cars in China uh, and they're all losing money there. So, um, you know, it's just sort of this sort of false hope that, you know, the Chinese middle class is small, maybe 150 million people, maybe 200 million out of 1.3 plus billion people. So, um, you know, it, it's just a lot of false hope that hasn't panned out. And we've been we've been committing to these policies for decades now. Uh, I think it's time to kind of, kind of reevaluate all of them. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Brett M. Decker, New York Times bestselling author and a professor. Um, all right, now back to back to the restart. The re- Here's what I want to ask you: not about the restart. I know you're in Ohio. You got your own challenges with uh, Governor Dewine, and different places are adjusting to different things. But um, earlier in the program, we talked with Lord Conrad Black, who you know is a historian. He's a business guy. He thinks the economy can start. It won't start on a dime, but it can start faster than people realize. It's just a very different moment in history. How do you feel about that? Well, what's your sense of things? Is there is there something that it's different than you know this this quarantine is not a recession because it's self-inflicted so when you turn it back on can you turn it on faster i mean what's your what's your thinking well you know the main factor we don't know is there going to be a second wave of coronavirus uh is there going to be pressure to shut down a second time which would be a disaster but like you said the fundamentals of the economy are strong this wasn't a this isn't a, a collapse because there's anything wrong with our system right now it's by an illness right so you remove the illness and maybe we're not for far enough along in this downturn that that we can't turn it around you know i think friday the dow jones industrial average jumped by 400 points really large rally um so that shows right there's still a lot of optimism in the market i talked to a realtor recently just sells uh vacation homes and said and this is in michigan and she said uh, they just opened up this weekend, and her next two weeks are booked. People looking for cabins because they're so sick of being stuck at home, and they think right. people think that it's going to be a big rebound once they're let out again. So you know, you know, if you unleash these kind of animal spirits, the economy, as long as it's not a V, right? People are wondering if it's going to be, or, or as long as it's a V recovery, you know, you mm-hmm. you hit bottom and then you go back up. As long as, as long as it's a V and not a W, where you know you hit bottom, you rise again, but then you have a second dip. If we have a second dip, yeah. we're in a lot of trouble. So, so let's hope that's not where we're heading. Well, I mean, I, 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 my thing on that is that even if there is, you know, if the um, 
if the virus spikes a couple times, as long as it's not as dramatic as we thought. I mean, I, you know, one of the phrases someone said, we've discovered this isn't the Black Death, but we didn't know that, and we had to, had to do this. But it, it, it's not the flu, right? So there's some, somewhere in between, and, and we'll see. All right, my last question with you, because I won't talk to you until next week. Uh, the vice president sweepstakes for Joe Biden, who's your pick? Joe Biden's VP will be whom? Uh, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. Um, even though she's gotten panned for overreacting on this, everybody overreacted. But the main thing is her popularity numbers are relatively decent in Michigan. And Michigan, yep. right, is one of the states that Trump won. You take Michigan off the map, it's really hard for Trump to come up with an electoral map where he gets reelected. So, you know, there's an argument can a VP deliver a state? Well, if a VP candidate doesn't deliver a state, no big deal, right? Uh, Paul Ryan was a big flop for Romney in Wisconsin. But if someone can help you in that state, Michigan would be a big enough prize that it's worth Biden doing it. Plus, she's popular with soccer moms. Um, and, you know, and if Biden can do better with women um, uh, than the Democrats did last time, uh, it makes it very challenging for Trump well, in, in November. Re- re- real, quick, real quick, though, uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer for the governor of Michigan. Can you really uh, get away with no person of color on that ticket? I mean, can the Democrats do that? You know, it's, they're, they're all about checking the box. And if you get, you know, I mean, you have a woman governor from a state you have to have. Like, where yeah. are people going to go? Like, the left hates Trump, yeah. right? So right. it's not – I think that they're going to be relatively motivated. And I think she, she checks a box, but not all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. That's a good one. I'm glad I asked you. That's why I asked you. All right, Dr. Brett Decker, New York Times bestselling author. We'll talk again very soon. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We will be right back. Ed Martin and the Pro-America Report. On The Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Have you ever wondered why the Democrat establishment would rather work against Bernie Sanders than with him? Bernie's policies, after all, are what these leftists have been talking about for decades. Why wouldn't they combine the grassroots support of Bernie with the billions of dollars held by the elites? The answer is simple. Bernie really means it. That set off alarm bells with those who push similar policies just to attract votes against Republicans. Bernie really will go after billionaires and Wall Street, which happens to be where many liberals get their wealth. However, the Bernie Sanders of the world are on the rise because Donald Trump proved that the power of the billionaire class has been broken by a return to the grassroots. That's true for Democrats as well as Republicans. Tom Steyer spent over $250 million of his own fortune on his campaign and didn't win a single delegate. Bernie raised $34.5 million in the fourth quarter last year with an average donation of only $18.53. The have-nots fueled his candidacy, and the Democrat establishment is running scared from them. The scariest part of the whole thing is that Bernie can create a grassroots army under the banner of these radically leftist policies. The rising tide of socialism is something no conservative can afford to ignore. Bernie is paving the way for others to challenge the fundamental American institutions we all hold dear. The Electoral College is under attack. The free market system is one of Sanders' biggest targets. The Second Amendment will be more at risk than ever before. 
and the sanctity of human life will be challenged by those who hold nothing sacred. This is what's at stake if we ignore grassroots socialism. Now is not the time to stick our heads in the sand. We must educate ourselves on the issues and prepare to engage a new generation in a way they can understand. The fight against socialism may be confined to the Democratic Party for now, but it's only a matter of time before they take over their party and come after conservatives. Let's take action before this happens. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. These culturally relevant commentaries, along with videos, columns, and bulletins, are waiting for you at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Plus, you can find, follow, and share our work on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin. It's Ed Martin's Pro-America Report. Great to be together. And don't forget, visit Ed, <clears throat> pardon me, edmartinlive.com to get signed up to get the daily email. Let's wrap things up as I promised. Let's talk about the uh, Council for Foreign Relations President uh, Richard Haas, H-A-A-S-S. You will see him frequently uh, in the morning on Morning Show, Morning Mika with Joe uh, Scarborough. And he is as, uh, well, actually, you know, earlier, Lord Conrad Black made a good point. Richard Haas seems like a nice guy. He seems like a very sort of civilized guy. That's kind of the M.O. of a lot of folks at a Council for Foreign Relations. There's not a lot of, nobody throws a beer bottle at each other at a CFR meeting, I don't think. I've never been to one. But th- their worldview tends to be, and I think they would call it internationalist. Somebody like me calls it globalist. And and so the piece that he published uh, over at, um, uh, and it was the Wall Street Journal. I misspoke earlier and said it was Politico. It was the Wall Street Journal, which makes you realize that the Wall Street Journal is in this uh, in the bag in this direction too. And that is this. The piece is entitled in the Wall Street Journal, A Cold War with China Would Be a Mistake. And then it goes on to say, well, Beijing does have some challenges, but uh, the most uh, you know, uh, formidable ones that U.S. faces are, are the coronavirus. They're transnational. It's not China. And then it goes on to say, like, how well, how everybody's nice. I mean, everybody, you know, but it's a Cold War. It's the second Cold War, and it has to be because the communist regime cannot exist as a system next to ours. And my point there is, it, it, yes, it's true. There's only one ending. We win, you lose. Period. But I don't care what they do. Well, I care a little bit. But I don't care to tell China how to change their life or their system. I just care to, to be upfront about how the Chinese communist regime, which rules China, dominates China, and has a dominant world position as a system... They cannot tell the truth. They cannot negotiate fairly. They cannot deal honestly. They cannot be transparent. So we get the Wuhan China virus in our lives in a way that it wouldn't have been if we had a real relationship with a, 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 a ally as opposed to a rival and an enemy or an enemy. We wouldn't have 50,000 people dying every year from fentanyl, which is made in China and brought to America. 50,000 
approximately. We wouldn't have the technology transfer of 150 years of American ingenuity in the last 20 years, 25 years, because China steals and cheats. I have a friend of mine who is in the uh, intelligence business, and he said to me, as soon as China sees America making headway on the cure, on the cures, vaccines, treatments, whatever for coronavirus, he said they will go about a plan to steal it. They'll use hacking and all surveillance and all that stuff. So the system in China, the communist regime's system, is incompatible with America, period. And if you thought it wasn't five years ago, you can be excused. But if you thought it five minutes ago, you're guilty. You're guilty of ignorance. You're guilty of worse. I'm sorry. Five years ago, you could be excused for thinking, well, maybe China's working okay with us. They do steal a little bit, but let's not. But if you think that five minutes ago, then you're just, you're just not being honest. Or you like the, the, the possibilities for you and your family and the people you care about to make lots of money and have a big living off of that system. And that system has failed America. So that's what, when Richard Haas writes this Cold War, it's a hard deal with China, it's all the things, it's, he's just not, he's not acknowledging that we're not standing next to, this isn't an American standing next to an American and saying, well, I come from Brooklyn, New York, and you come from uh, Houston, Texas. I come from Seattle, Washington. You come from Tampa Bay, Florida. Well, we have different, uh, you know, we have different accents, and we have to, but fundamentally, can we get along? Yeah, we can. And, and, uh, and the northern might talk faster and the southerner might uh, be more laid back and the Florida guy may be more sunny and the, and the Seattle guy is a rainy night. Day. But, but we'd fundamentally be on the same page as to the system of how we live together. The Chinese regime is incompatible. That's the problem. That's why it's a second Cold War. And there's no excuses. We win, they lose. If you're not on board for that, you're against us. So we got a lot of work to convince everybody, starting with Richard Haas. All right. Thank you, as always, to Noah, our great technical director, Joanna, for helping book things. And we will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Be back then.